Sean Graves was 15 years old in 1999. He was a freshman student at Columbine High School in Colorado. Sean likes comic books and MacGyver. He was a normal kid by most standards. And on April 20th, 1999, Sean and 24 others were shot by two of their fellow students. Graves survived having been shot six times and has had over 49 surgeries in the 20 years since that event to recover and repair his partial paralysis. Sean and his wife have had to navigate life after the Columbine shooting. Sean's daughter sees how it affects him every day. She looks at her daddy and has to, how he has to deal with nagging injuries as well as has to hear him tell her to identify the exits wherever they go and to look out for people who might pose a threat and to listen along with him to the police scanner. Graves and other survivors like him say that it's hard for an event like this shooting not to shape them for the rest of their lives. Sean's wife, Kara, says that out of sight, out of mind, that mentality just doesn't quite work. This event has become a part of us. The principal of the high school at the time, Frank DeAngelis, witnessed how the students at Columbine High School were changed in the days and weeks and years after the shooting in 1999. He said that the cafeteria at the school could no longer serve Chinese food because Chinese food was what they served on the day of the shooting, and just the smell of it would bring memories of the event. For the same reason, the school had to change the sound of the fire alarms, because whenever the fire alarm went off, it would bring memories of the day of that event. Frank DeAngelis, the principal of the time himself, going to a professional baseball game, when he heard the fireworks there, it made him dive to the ground and start crying. There are events in our lives, be they tragedies or triumphs, that shape us and become a part of us. For the survivors of the Columbine High School shooting, it was what happened on April 20th, 1999. For you, it might be a divorce, a death, a birth, a change, something else. But friends, for all Christians, there is one event meant to change and shape and become a part of each one of us. And that is the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Reading what comes in the New Testament after Jesus' death and resurrection, we can see how it shaped Christian lives entirely. It shaped their behavior. It shaped their perspective. It shaped their goals. It shaped their hopes. The cross shaped the early Christians so much that one of the prominent leaders of the early church said of his tactics in ministry that he decided to know nothing among people except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The cross became central to them. Friends, this was Jesus' intention from the very beginning, even before he died on the cross. So the main point of today's portion of the gospel according to Mark is a theme that runs through the rest of the New Testament. That Jesus not only saves his people through his work on the cross, but he also means to shape his people through his work on the cross. Save and shape. Friends, the cross is more than a piece of jewelry 
The cross is our life. The cross is our salvation. So I want you to find a Bible. Turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark and find chapter 9, um, verse 30. This is where we left off last winter. We're taking each winter and going through maybe two or three chapters of the Gospel of Mark, sometimes more. I wanted to try to finish it this winter, but it would be too much. Uh, so we're going to take next winter, too. We'll finish the Gospel of Mark next year. Uh, but today we are in Mark 9, find verse 30, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, verse 50. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silence. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who, is able, who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. Friends, if we're going to become the kind of community that is shaped by the cross, then we need to know the way of the cross. And knowing the way of the cross, when we know that, Jesus says in this passage that it will show up in our service, in our unity, and in our holiness. So first, we must see and know the way of the Savior if we are going to be shaped by him. The way of the Savior. Now, unless you've been living under a rock, and I don't really know if people do that. I don't know how that saying came about. But unless you've been living under a rock, you know that 2020 is an election year for the position of the President of the United States. 
Now, each hopeful candidate has scores of people leading their campaign, attempting to try to figure out the most effective way to appeal to the voting base. So everything they do from carefully designing merchandise to carefully designing phrasing and press releases and public appearances and debates and even more. There is so much that goes into a a presidential campaign. It's unbelievable. Now imagine being a part of a campaign. It might be exciting. And the candidate you work for comes to you with a new direction that he or she wants to go. And he or she says to you, look, not only am I going to lose the election, but at the very end of the election, the opposition is going to assassinate me. That's my new strategy. To say you'd be confused would be counting lightly. But then if you realize that he or she is actually serious, you really might be scared for that person. And this is what Jesus is again explaining to his disciples as this passage starts in verses 30 to 32. I say again because this is the second time Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection. Just like the first time back in chapter 8, when Jesus took his disciples north to a place called Caesarea Philippi, the disciples react here again with confusion. Back in chapter 8, the apostle Peter was so bold to take Jesus aside and actually rebuke him to his face, saying, Lord, this can't happen. So far in the Gospel of Mark, Mark's concern in writing to his predominantly Roman audience has been to answer the question posed in chapter 4, verse 41. Who then is this Jesus? Who then is this Jesus? Mark has shown over and over again how as the Son of God, Jesus has authority over creation. He has authority over sin. He has authority over Satan, over disease, over death. But he's also shown, Mark has also shown it in Jesus' life, that Jesus' mission did not meet the expectations of the people of his day. The people of his day had different expectations for who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. So Jesus' disciples, his family members, his hometown, didn't understand him. The official religious authorities, the guys who would be the best or should have been the best at recognizing the Messiah, not only did they not recognize him, but they opposed him, plotted against him. But while not excusing all this opposition that Jesus received, Mark shows Jesus communicating that he expected opposition because it was a part of his mission. Part of his mission, the main part of his mission, is to come and die in the place of his people, which Mark shows time and again not only included ethnic Jewish people, but even Gentiles. So another example of Jesus communicating his mission is seen right here in this passage, Mark 9, verses 30 to 32. Just noticing some details of these verses, we see that Jesus and his his disciples right away are going back south to the region of Galilee. This is the northern part of Israel. There is the Sea of Galilee there. Uh, This is where Jesus spent the majority of his time. And just 
A sneak preview beyond these verses in verse 33, uh, we're told they wind up back in the city of Capernaum. This was a type of home base for Jesus and his disciples during his ministry. Uh, And then Jesus, back to this first paragraph of verses, we see that he's focused on teaching and explaining to his disciples his coming work on the cross and the implications that that work entailed. He's focused on teaching his disciples. Now, just as a little sidebar, I think we can get some teaching from that action itself. It's a good reminder that while Jesus taught and preached to scores of people, thousands of people, he spent so much of his time, probably the majority of his time, investing in and pouring into 12 ordinary men. This was Jesus's tactics. So just thinking of us, as we're in a season of goal setting, as we are Christians who desire to be used by the Lord in some measure for his glory to advance his kingdom, we might not speak in front of thousands of people. But maybe this year, like Jesus, we can carve out regular time to spend with one or two other fellow Christians. Try to encourage that brother or sister. Sharpen them. Help them follow the Lord more faithfully. Help them strengthen their faith. Maybe pick out a book of the Bible to read together each week. Just talk it over and pray. Get together maybe once a month to pray together. Read a Christian book together. Friends, investing in just one or two Christians. I think this is the way of our master. Just his tactics. It's help one another follow the Lord more faithfully. All right. Sidebar over. <laughs> the meat of what Jesus says, verses 30 to 32. He tells them that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, but that he would rise three days later. Now, when we read the disciples saying that they didn't understand that, we just ask how. Jesus' words seem clear as day. What do you mean you don't understand that? It's just pretty black and white language to me. Now, the disciples, we think also for them, they could have seen storm clouds brewing over Jesus' life. We're not long removed from John the Baptist, Jesus' predecessor, being murdered himself. So how could they not have understood? Now, we've talked earlier, just briefly, that just kind of by using an analogy for political campaign strategy, how this would not make sense to the disciples. And we, too, we have to remember that we have the benefit of looking back at this and not looking forward to it. But I think there's something else that will help us see why the disciples had a hard time understanding this from Jesus. I think we get a clue from uh, the title Jesus uses for himself. You see, in verse 31, he calls himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man is, uh, the title's taken from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. And there, the Son of Man is a powerful figure who will usher in the kingdom of God. He's majestic. And then here, Jesus says that the Son of Man, this powerful, majestic, kingdom of God ushering person, the Son of Man is going to suffer and die. He's saying the one who is going to be great and victorious will be weak and will lose. Doesn't quite make sense. As one author puts it, when Jesus says this over and over again, including here, He is saying that my apparent loss is really a conquest. 
that my apparent weakness is really my strength. What the disciples and others in Jesus' day didn't understand was that the Son of Man of Daniel 7 is the same figure as the suffering servant that we saw in Isaiah 53 just a couple weeks ago. Even last week, in looking at the closing of Isaiah, we saw that the Messiah is both the lamb that was slain and the lion that will reign. The same figure, son of man, suffering servant. This has always been the plan for the work of the Messiah. And we even get a clue from this verse that this was the plan. Look again at verse 31. You see the word delivered there. Now, do you see, just going to English class a little bit, you got to bear with me. Do you see how there is no subject attached to that verb delivered? In other words, who is the one who is delivering Jesus? Doesn't say. This is the passive voice. This is what's known as a divine passive. A divine passive. That means that even though the subject of this verb is not stated, it's implied that the subject is God. God is the one who ultimately delivers Jesus. So what we saw back again in Isaiah 53, verse 10, when it says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is God's plan to save sinners. This is not caught by surprise. This was designed. This is the way of the Savior. So the disciples didn't understand this. And not only did their silence show that they didn't understand this, as we keep reading in this passage, their actions also showed that they did not understand the way of their Savior. So as we move into verses 33 to 37, we see how if Jesus' people follow the way of the cross, then they will be a community that serves. They will be a community that serves. Now, Jesus and his disciples, just getting our bearings here, they're back at their home base of Capernaum. They're likely in Peter's house where they've been before. And being the master question asker that Jesus is, Jesus draws out his disciples, just asks a very winsome, innocent question that points out their foolishness. He asks them, what were you discussing on the way? And again, Jesus gets crickets, silence. And this time it's because of their embarrassed guilt. His disciples knew that Jesus wouldn't approve of what they were talking about because they weren't just talking. You see there? They weren't just talking. They were arguing. And like most of our arguments, they were arguing about something that is altogether dumb. (laughs) Arguing about who was the greatest. Now, we've talked about political campaigns. Now, this time... Imagine that you are part of a music tour of your favorite solo artist. I will let you fill in the blank. For the sake of your imagination, let's just say this was Michael Jackson at the height of his prime right after the album Thriller came out. So you are a part of Michael Jackson's tour. Now, Jesus' disciples arguing about who among them is the greatest would be like Michael Jackson's backup singers and dancers arguing about who among them is the greatest. What they would misunderstand was that they were on the Michael Jackson tour, not the Michael Jackson backup singers tour. The disciples themselves misunderstood. Their lives, their ministries were not about them. They're about Christ. At least they should have been. 
But knowing the background of the culture that the disciples lived in might help us make sense of this foolish argument. Now, the writings of Judaism in, that, in the day of the disciples included speculation about where people would sit in heaven in regards to how important they were and how great they were. And so that speculation led them to sit in certain places in, in when they had worship services, when they had meals, in a way to reflect where they would sit in heaven. So these priorities were kind of baked into the disciples from their culture. And friends, is our culture any different? Our culture influences us in the same way, the same negative way. We are preoccupied with finding our value, our importance from our size, our platform, our influence. And friends, just a reminder, this can affect small churches as much as it can affect large churches. So with God's help, with God's help, let's rise above that as a church. Let's aim to be a community that's too focused on Christ to get caught up in vying for platforms and influences with other churches. Too focused on Jesus. Let's aim to not look carelessly at other ministries, but first look for ways to rejoice at other ministries instead of criticize. Because we rejoice when the gospel is preached. So the disciples, even though they were silent, when asked a question by Jesus, Jesus, being Jesus, still knew their error. And he took the position of the teacher. You know, teachers in that day, they sat down. Uh, maybe we should start doing that. It helped me out a little bit. Um, and he begins by saying, he says there, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And we can picture what Jesus does next. He calls probably the youngest boy in the home they were in, and he brings that little boy right into the middle of the discussion. And he turned to the disciples and said, it's only when you welcome little ones like this that you have really welcomed me. And when you have learned to welcome me, you have learned to welcome the Father who sent me. Now what's Jesus doing here? Again, it's helpful to know the background of Jesus' day to learn a little bit about what Jesus is doing here. Now, we fawn over children today, almost making them too central. It's really hard not to. But back in that day, the pendulum pretty much swung in the other direction. This was a society where many infants died, and there were just way higher demands for human labor. And so that meant less people were really sentimental about children being all innocent and pure. Now, instead, to the people back then, Children were dependents. They were those who haven't yet arrived. They were those who weren't valued because they couldn't contribute. So Jesus, knowing that background, Jesus is doing a couple things by using this analogy. Jesus is saying in one sense that he is like this child. That even though he was big and powerful, he became weak and helpless for our sake. And so by the disciples' lack of a humble, serving spirit, they showed that they did not understand what Jesus came to do. In another sense, though, Jesus, by using this analogy, is saying that he is the one who welcomes this child. You see a little detail in the verse. Uh, he wraps the child in his arms. It's a reminder that Jesus has not come to the righteous and to the strong. 
He's come to those who know they are weak and know they need a Savior and are helpless without Jesus. And so, since we were weak and helpless, and Jesus came to us, Jesus is saying we also should go and serve those who are weak and helpless. That's what Jesus is doing with this analogy. So, friends, just imagine if we were a people so shaped by Jesus' work to become weak and helpless and live and die for us who ourselves were weak and helpless and guilty. Imagine if that shaped how we approached gathering together and how we approached other people. Just think about how a Christ-like attitude of humble service might change how we as a community approach coming together on Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings, very practical. Instead of approaching this time and this people asking, how can my needs be met today? And how can you meet my needs? Instead of that, those being the questions that we ask when we come gather to this time, instead of that, a humble, Christ-like serving spirit asks the question, how can I serve and meet the needs of others today? First, providers instead of consumers. That's the perspective of a cross-shaped community. It's no wonder why the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the Christians who met in Philippi, to have the mind of Christ, where he says, in humility, to count others more significant than themselves. And look, not just to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the mind of Christ. You might have heard it said that humility is not so much thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So the cross, friends, allows us to do that. The cross allows us to just forget ourselves and how we measure up because God's verdict on us is in. Jesus has paid it all. We are forgiven. We are justified. We are accepted. We are loved. We don't have to earn that anymore. So as those who have received the gracious and humble work of Jesus on the cross, we are now freed to focus on others. So we've talked about having this perspective on Sunday mornings. Just think of one aspect of Sunday mornings. Think about the conversations you have on Sunday mornings. I've heard someone say that when we walk away from a conversation with a person who has this Christ-like, humble, serving spirit, we don't necessarily walk away from the conversation saying, wow, that person was so humble. No, more often, we walk away from those conversations just feeling cared for because the person was too busy focusing on us, listening well, asking really thoughtful questions. That's the mark of humility. And so do you see how Jesus' humble service displayed ultimately for our salvation on the cross. It not only saves us, but friends, it can shape the entire way we live, including how we live as a community of people. So another way, that the way of the Savior shapes the characteristics of the community he's building is that it makes us a community that unites, a community that unites. Here we're looking at verses 38 to 42. 38 to 42. And again, the teachings prompted by the disciples' foolishness. This time, the foolishness comes from John. 
And it's the only time that John is singled out in the book of Mark. Now, normally John, he wrote an entire book of the Bible, he's known usually as the apostle of love, but that's not the whole story about John. Jesus nicknamed John and his brother James sons of thunder. So John was not by nature very meek and mild. He was pretty bullheaded, as we see here. Now look at verse 38. You see, John comes to Jesus with a beef. John saw someone unfamiliar casting out demons in Jesus' name. Now what exactly was John's problem? Should John just be undiscerning? Should John not be concerned that other people might hijack the name of Jesus and use it up as a prop and therefore dishonor the name of Jesus? Well, friends, if you look closely at verse 38, you'll see that that's not what John was concerned about. Look at John's actual complaint to Jesus. He says, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. Why? Because he was not following us. There's one word in there that should sound really off. Us, exactly. What made John upset was not that this particular person that they saw was not following Jesus. It made him upset that he was not following him, the disciples. Now, last time I checked, the disciples should have been more concerned about whether or not people followed Jesus than whether or not people followed them. Last time I checked, Jesus is the one who actually called them out by name and told them to do what? Follow me. And so there also might be underneath John's motivations some envy at play. In the previous chapter, uh, the disciples weren't able to cast out demons. But here we see this anonymous guy who's just not an official disciple being able to do what they couldn't. So Jesus, again, corrects his disciples he does so very, very graciously. We'll just walk verse by verse, 39 to 42, very quickly. See what Jesus is doing. Jesus first reminds John that ministry in his name did not just belong to the official few, but it belongs to all in the kingdom. Jesus, secondly, says that this man could not trust his name well enough to do a miracle one minute and then deny him in the next minute. Thirdly, Jesus goes on to say something that sounds a little curious to us in verse 40. He says, for the one who is not against us is for us. And we just think, we meet people all the time who say they don't have anything personally against Jesus. But we would by no means call those people disciples of Jesus. So what is Jesus saying? Is Jesus saying that we're wrong? No. Jesus responds in this way because he recognized that John was only concerned about his own role and rank. John was not concerned about Christ and Christ's kingdom. Jesus was telling John that the real issue wasn't whether or not this man belonged to John's group. The real issue was whether or not this man was against him, was against Jesus. Fourth, we just keep going, walking through these verses. In verse 41, Jesus tells John that any work in his name deserves to be honored. Even work as simple as giving a cup of water. So here Jesus says that ministry in his name is not just about the big and the spectacular. It's often more often about the small and seemingly ordinary. Kindness in Jesus' name that might go unnoticed. 
but comes from a heart that loves him and isn't concerned about own personal rank and honor. Fifth, in verse 42, which I think belongs better in verses 38 to 31 than 43 to 50, just a subtle reminder that the paragraph divisions are not a part of the original text. Uh, Jesus says here in this verse that the disciples' pride and kind of partisan spirit, the mindset that their role and rank mattered more than whether or not someone followed Jesus, that mindset, Jesus says, will discourage and tempt other believers to stop serving Jesus, which would be sin for those people. So back when I played baseball, uh, I remember the coaches of one of the teams we uh, played every year, this was when I was younger, uh, the coaches required their, each one of their pitchers to use the exact same technique and motion when they pitched, when they threw a ball. And the motion was actually kind of weird. It was way overemphasized. And it ended up forcing players to do things that didn't feel very natural to them which is, in turn, would affect how they performed in the long term. So just think of these coaches. These coaches may have been well-meaning, but they had misplaced priorities. The coach's highest priority should have been that each of their players has, not that they don't have the exact same technique to the smallest detail, their highest priority should have been that each pitcher would throw strikes and get batters out. If they looked a little different doing that, so be it. The point isn't to be as pragmatic and just do what works. The point is to remember things of first importance. Remember things of first importance. The overall takeaway from Jesus' response uh, to John's foolishness is that Jesus is building a community that unites. It unites. Now, what we are united around is not a human personality. What we are united around is not a political stance. What we are united around is not preferences. As Christians, what we are united around is first a person, Jesus Christ. Uniting around Jesus first means we are more concerned about people following him than with our own rank, reputation, and position. Again, friends, as those who are recipients of the finished work of Christ, we no longer have to worry about those things. It's done. It's over. It's finished. So practically, a community that's united first around Jesus and is more concerned with his honor than its own personal rank and position won't have the harmful qualities of competition. We've talked about this a little bit before. But when this kind of community looks at other churches, it will, like Paul did in Philippians 1, rejoice when it sees peop other people in places that are preaching the gospel. This is one, one reason why we pr pray for other churches every Sunday. Because we're not in competition. We're in cooperation. Within that community of, that's united first around Jesus, within this community, there won't be the competitive spirit that vies for rank that tries to outdo and one-up one another. It won't be a community that says Christian ministry belongs only to those who are in official positions. It won't be. Instead, in this kind of community, those in official positions will seek to equip everyone to serve Jesus in their daily lives. A community that's united first around Jesus 
will major on the majors and not major on the minors. It will not bind consciences where scripture does not bind consciences. It will remember that there are plenty of issues that Christians can disagree on and still exist charitably in the same church. A community that unites first around Jesus remembers that it does not unite first around economic policies and things like homeschooling versus public schooling. It does not unite first around you know, what you watch on TV. These are all things we should think through carefully, but they are not the matters of first importance. Jesus is who we unite around first. So finally, a community that's united first around Jesus, more concerned with his honor than its own personal role and rank and position, will have people who aren't above doing simple, unnoticed, menial tasks, like serving in the nursery, Thank you, ladies. Like opening up your home, like writing a note, like cleaning, and just fill in the blank. Friends, if this is not about us, but about Christ, then we will be willing to do more for his sake and put him before our comforts and convenience. A community that unites. So through his work on the cross, Jesus saves his people. Jesus shapes them into a community that serves, that unites, and finally, that is holy. Having just warned his disciples about causing other Christians to stumble by discouraging them from serving him because of their own pride, Jesus now redirects his disciples to close out the passage. He tells them that instead of being concerned with causing other Christians to stumble, they should make sure that they themselves don't stumble. So in verses 43 to 50, Jesus explains that causing others to sin is serious because sin itself is serious. It deserves to be avoided at any cost because of where sin leads. Any cost. Jesus says in these verses that we should go even as far as cutting off our hand or cutting off our foot are plucking out our eye to avoid sin. This is how serious it is. Now, Jesus is using extreme examples. Back to English class, Jesus is using what's known as hyperbole. He's saying, though, the principle of what he's saying is that even what we value the most, like our hand, like our foot, like our eye, is worth losing if it stands in the way of us remaining with the Lord. What we value most is not as important as the Lord. By Jesus referring, though, to the hand, foot, and eye, I think there's some wisdom in that. I think it's strategic. He's saying that avoiding sin means being careful in what we do with our hands, where we go with our feet, and what we look at and watch with our eyes. Avoiding sin means being careful in all of those categories. We need to be willing I think a part of what the principle Jesus is saying is that to avoid sin, we need to be willing to be inconvenienced and remain close to the Lord. I think, friends, this looks like an attitude of asking ourselves not what's the most I can do and still be okay. Rather, we need to ask ourselves, what should I do? Not what's the most I can do, but rather what should I do? 
That's the mark of Christian maturity. Jesus stresses the importance of just this comprehensive watchfulness against sin. Because like we said, he knows where sin leads. Just in Jesus' words himself, he says that sin leads to hell. The unquenchable fire. Where he says the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's just a reminder, friends, that no one in the Bible talks about hell more than Jesus. And reading here, Jesus speaks of hell as a real place. One author sums up what Jesus says about hell here like this. Hell is simply the misery and disintegration that sin brings on now, extended out fully and for all eternity. So think about this, friends. If this is how serious sin is, that it leads to real eternal hell, and if we all have sin, then by standing in our place on the cross, Jesus did more than bear three hours of physical anguish. He did more than just that. If Jesus stands in our place, then he bore the eternal weight of hell on the cross. That is unimaginable. So isn't it ironic then that those who would deny the reality of hell actually minimize Jesus' work on the cross and make it less weighty? Friends, if this is what Jesus has done, then we should be a community that is holy. That means we are those who take avoiding sin seriously. Because just we know what it costs Jesus. And we know where sin leads. We don't allow compromises when it comes to this. So just think, if you are in your house and just sitting in your living room, and all of a sudden one of the cushions on your couch just spontaneously combusts and is on fire, Will you just sit there and say, oh, it'll be okay. I like the, I like the look of fire. It's very calm and peaceful. <laughs> no, you will get your butt off the couch and you will try to put out this fire because you know this fire will spread if it is not contained. As it's been said, Christians, we need to be killing sin or sin will be killing us. So what are the ways you are treating sin casually? What are the ways you are treating sin casually? Having, what are the ways you have that perspective of this is how much I can do rather than this is what I should do? Charles Spurgeon said that he would rather be accused of being a Pharisee than actually being a hypocrite. Being a community that is holy not only means that we seek to avoid sin, but also that we present ourselves entirely to the Lord. Jesus goes on in verse 49. He says that everyone will be salted with fire. A little bit tricky of a verse. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices made in the temple were seasoned with salt. So Jesus seems to be saying that as we offer our lives to him, that we too will become like those sacrifices. Because God will allow trials in our lives that burn away the sin in our hearts. One of the reasons for trials. Through trials, we emerge tested, purified, and closer to the Lord. It's a hard question to ask, but it's worth asking ourselves. 
Are we willing to be cleansed through the hard circumstances that God brings in our lives? Are we willing to try to see and try to see how God can draw us closer to him through those hard circumstances? That leads to our holiness. Well, Jesus appears to sum up the whole section in verse 50. Before there were refrigerators, the way people preserved food was with salt. And so when Christians follow Jesus in a community that's marked by humble service, gospel unity, and holiness, that is when God will use that group of Christians to impact those who don't know Christ around them. So the degree to which each one of these qualities marks us as a people, it corresponds not to how much we dig deeper and try harder. Friends, it corresponds to how much We are shaped by and embrace the way of our Savior who died for us on the cross. He frees ourselves. He frees us from having to put ourselves first. Jesus frees us from the power of sin so that we can humbly serve, love others, and walk in holiness. With God's help, let's do this. Lord, like we said, We cannot be a community where there is humility, where there is service, where there is just an other's mindedness, where there is a unity first around Jesus and not around our preferences, and where there is real gospel holiness. We cannot be these things without your grace. So help us, Lord. Help us focus on the cross. Make this our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.